If you were to ask anybody who would claim to be a Christian what it is that makes Christianity unique, I have a feeling they would all answer that question with some sort of answer that's related back to the fact that they believe that Jesus Christ saved them. That is one of the most central beliefs to the Christian faith is that they were saved. You ask anybody in this room, if you are a Christian, you would look back to a time when you believe that God saved you. If there's somebody in this room or listening online that is not a Christian, then, and you've interacted with Christians, and you've explained to ask them, what makes, why are you a Christian? They would say something along the lines of, well, Jesus saved me. At least I hope that they would. But I think that a necessary question that we need to ask, both if you are a Christian and if you're a non-Christian, if you're, you're, you've, you, maybe you've been in church for just a little bit, you're learning about God, you're learning about Christianity, an important question that we all need to ask is why does Jesus save? If we're going to believe that there is a God that created everything and that for some reason we're also going to believe that that God decided to save you, the question we need to ask is why? Why did God save you? It may not sound like an important question, but I think that the, un, the proper understanding of that question of why did God save you impacts how we live. And I think that if we have the wrong answer to that question, then we have the wrong outlook of how we're supposed to live our lives. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to go to a passage in Scripture that I think gives us two things. I think it gives us the purpose for why Jesus saves. Now, why? And then I think it also gives us his way or his plan that he uses to achieve that purpose. I think it gives us both of those things. And I think that understanding both of those things is very, very important to us. This morning. So if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Mark. Whether you have a physical copy or one on your phone or wherever else, grab your Bible, open up to the book of Mark. We are going to be in chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 20. And for some of you that are turning your pages and see Mark chapter 5 and see the little title that it gives above chapter 5, you understand why Pastor John was saying this might be a message that is suitable for Halloween. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 is our passage for today. And it's in the beginning, it's relatively in the beginning of the greater book of Mark, written by an apostle or disciple of Jesus Christ, someone that followed Jesus throughout his three years on earth, and he wrote about it later. And what's in, and something that we do is when we're going over different texts of Scripture, we can many times kind of center in too much on the passage and lose the entirety of the book itself, of the central message that the author is trying to communicate. You stare close, too close to the tree, you forget the forest. And so I think that it's important for us to understand what Mark is trying to communicate through this book. And if you look at the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, Mark is continuing to ask the question, who is Jesus? That's the central question 
that Mark is asking. And that question, in many ways, is answered in this story. And even the one before this story. If, we're gonna, if, I, if I can take your attention really quickly to the last part of Mark chapter 4, that is a story where Jesus and his disciples are in a boat. They're in the middle of a big lake called the Sea of Galilee. Don't ask me why it's called a sea. It's a lake. And at, at a random point, a massive storm sweeps over the lake. It happens very suddenly and very violently. The waves are very, um, very tall, and they're very dangerous in the rain and the thunder. You can picture it in your mind. The disciples are afraid, and somehow Jesus is sleeping in that, in that boat. The disciples quickly wake him up, and Jesus, with three words, looks at the storm and says, Peace, be still, and the storm vanishes immediately. In the last part of chapter 4, specifically chapter 4, verse 41, says, And they, being the disciples, were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus that we're hanging out with that can talk to a storm and make it stop immediately by his command? Who is this guy? With that question in the back of your mind, we go to chapter 5. And allow me to set the scene for you in this passage. As it says, it says that they're going to the other side of the sea. So I want you to imagine for yourselves. If some of you were up early this morning and before the sun rose, you saw that it was dark out and there was a really thick fog you know, me and Kezi saw it driving into church this morning. If you guys saw that this morning, that's kind of how I picture the setting of this story. It's very eerie, very, dare I say, scary or Halloween-esque type of a setting where there's this, there's this big, large lake and the fog is so thick you can't see over to the other side of the lake. It's dark out and not just dark like in... Battle Creek dark, it's dark like you're in the middle of the woods dark. You can, the, when, the, when for somehow the stars are bright, it's that dark. It's dark, dark. You see, you're sitting on the lake shore. You see a boat come out of the fog. Thirteen individuals sitting in it. The boat comes out of the fog. It's quiet, it's unsettling, it's eerie. It lands up against the shore. You see the individuals getting out of the boat, 13 individuals to be exact. And then you hear this scream. This scream, this, this, this gut-wrenching, agonizing scream. And there's something about this scream. You can identify this scream, at least as, for the most part, Sounds like the scream of, of a man. But there's something in his voice that is inflected that, that makes this scream, though you recognize it as a man, it contains some sort of unnatural filter to it. I want you to imagine yourself as one of the disciples. 
you're with Jesus, you just saw the storm get settled, you roll up on the shore, it's dark out, it's eerie, you hear this gut-wrenching, unnatural scream, and then out of nowhere you see some guy run down the bank. This would have been a steep, like a, like a hillside almost. It was a hill that went down into the water. And so you see some guy running down the hill. You can identify him as having destroyed, tattered clothes, a poor excuse of clothes, running down the hill, screaming at you very unnaturally, and running straight up to you, and, and, and falling straight on his knees in front of this man named Jesus, and you hear him yell out, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. Does that sound like a haunted house to you? That's terrifying. I can kind of do scary movies, but that, like, I'm out. Like, I'm, I'm done. I'm getting back on the boat. I'm getting out of there. But this is a passage that tells a very dark story. It tells a very sad story. It tells a story that in verse 2 is identified as a man with an unclean spirit. An unclean spirit. We might, in our modern 21st century language today, call that a man with, that has undergone some form of demon possession. Now, for those of you that just heard that and got a little bit antsy, that's okay. Because I feel like the topic or the conversation of evil spiritual forces in our culture is one that is sometimes laughed at, but also, on the other hand, sometimes very, very serious. There's some people that hear the thought of evil spiritual forces and they, and they, they say, are you crazy? Well, like the, like the, like the Exorcist movies where there's the, the, the gal like running, like doing a little weird little handstand thing. If you don't understand that reference, that's fine. But there's also some people that might hear that and maybe take a step too far into the deep end. There's opposites. You may be on one side or the other, but I think that both sides carry their own level of danger, and both sides misunderstand the reality of evil spiritual forces that are all throughout the Scriptures, that are all throughout the Scriptures, especially all throughout the New Testament, and especially more so all throughout the ministry of Jesus. This is a common occurrence for Jesus. Does anyone else feel uncomfortable? I know I kind of do. It's just a weird topic to talk about, and we like to just read over it and almost give the Bible a little bit of a, of a fairy tale element. We say that's just a story that happened at some point, and leave it at that. But let's learn a little bit about this guy, this, this man who is possessed by an unclean spirit. It says in verse 3, verse 3 to about verse 5, he lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So again, I want you to picture this guy in your mind. 
He lives in the tombs. You may, be, you may hear tombs and you think of a graveyard. Not necessarily a graveyard. Think more of along the, the, the hillside of this region. There's different caves inside of the hills. That's what a tomb would have looked like. That was this culture's version of a cemetery. You'd go up the hill, you'd find out where the tomb was of, you know, of grandma, and you'd go and visit that, that tomb. That's, that's how they did it back then. And so you have this guy living in these tombs. You have this guy who you can imagine, he's been there, he's, he's filthy, he's dirty, he's, he's, he has a poor excuse of, of like sackcloth for clothing, it's tattered, it's shredded. You, can, you hear of this extraordinary strength that he possesses. You can imagine there's these, these shackles that are on his arms and there's these chains dangling. And he says that he would even go and he would cut himself with stones. He would cut himself with stones. And no one had the strength to subdue him. Now again, picture yourself in the disciples' shoes. You see this character running at you, falling at the feet of this man named Jesus, whom you don't even know fully who he is. And he cries out in a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you before God, do not torment me. I don't know who I should be more afraid of, this, this, this demon-possessed guy or this Jesus guy that this demon is bowing before and calling him the Son of the Most High God. Again, now, and again, fit this into the greater story of Mark. Who is this Jesus? The disciples didn't have an answer when they saw him calm the storm. Yet the demons, the evil spiritual forces, had a very clear answer. This is one of the first times that Jesus is referred to properly as the Son of God in the entire book of Mark. One of the only times, one of the first times at least, excuse me. And we see, we hear this conversation that Jesus has with the demon. Jesus doesn't talk a lot in this passage also. It's an interesting observation to make. This demon falls before him. He calls him the son of the most high God. He says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Jesus is talking with him, and he says, come out of the man, you evil spirit. He asks, and then the Jesus asks him, what is your name? Who are you? The demon responds, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion was a common term that the ancient culture that, that specifically people in this culture would have known. A legion was a military term. Think of it like a battalion or like a regiment or a different, I don't know military terms super well, but it was a military term, and a legion consisted of about 6,000 soldiers. It was a Roman military term. So there would have been this almost Roman-esque type connection to this word. Now, does that mean there was exactly 6,000 demons in this guy? We don't know. We don't know that answer. Some people think so, some people don't think so. I say scripture doesn't fully tell us. But this is a very severe and very sad story 
of a man who is overcome and overpowered by these evil forces, which number is we cannot even know, could be hundreds and thousands. We don't know the answer to that. And, I, and if we take for a moment and have empathy with this man, his life has been torture. His life has been torment. He's isolated by himself, doesn't have friends, doesn't have family. All he has around him is this pain, this darkness, this unexplainable torment that he's encountering. And he's, he's at a point where there is no, in his mind, you can imagine he might even be thinking, to, how can I get out of this? What is my hope right now? What can deliver me from this evil? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever been a point in your life where you have felt no hope, where you have reached rock bottom? What does that look like for you? This man is there. But then we almost see a solution. Just by happenstance, as they're having this conversation, if you could call it that, there happens to be a herd of pigs nearby. For some reason, this is my favorite part of the story. There happens to be this herd of pigs nearby, numbered roughly around 2,000, a huge herd of pigs. If you've ever seen pigs, they're huge, they're fat, they're smelly. They taste great. But there's these thousands of pigs on this hillside. And the demons, they see a way out. They say, let us, let us, give us permission. They say, give us permission to go and be among the pigs. Let us go there. They have to ask for permission from Jesus. Jesus gave them permission. They could do nothing outside of the permission of the will of the choice of this man named Jesus. And as a result, Jesus gives them permission. The demons leave this man, and they enter into this herd of pigs. And I have to be careful here because my wife's favorite animal is a pig. But 2,000 pigs, all of a sudden, for some reason... They get this possession. How it works, I don't know. I can't explain that to you. But all we know is these pigs run down the hill, charging, jump off of the cliff. At this place, in the geographic place of this lake, there was a big, a tall cliff face. And so they're not running down into a shore. They're jumping off of a cliff, landing into the water, and it says they drowned. They died. 10,000 not 10, 2,000 dead pig carcasses floating in the water. What a horrifying and weird place to find yourself. But what we get here is very clear. We get a little bit of a hint into the question of who Jesus is. 
We don't fully know who he is, but we know that he is referred to as the son of God by these evil forces, and we know that he has the power to choose what and where these evil spiritual forces can go. Jesus has the authority over these evil forces, these evil forces that are causing torment in this poor man that he has no deliverance from. Jesus has authority over them. He shows his authority over these demons, over these evil spiritual forces, by saving, delivering this man from these evil forces. Which forces us to ask, this is, who is this God? Is this guy worthy of our worship? Is he God? He must be, if he can do this. We talked earlier about what is the purpose of Jesus saving. What is the, if Jesus does save, what is his purpose? I would make the suggestion that Jesus' purpose in saving us is to glorify himself by showing his authority over everything else. Jesus' purpose in saving us, just as it was in saving this man, is to glorify himself by revealing his authority over everything. There is nothing that is more powerful than Jesus Christ. There is nothing greater than Jesus Christ. Not even the darkest, evilest forces in this world are stronger than God. And he shows that by delivering us from evil. Because while I'm, I'm not going to be in here and claim that there is demon possession in this room, I can't, no, not, gonna, not going there. But there is an evil that is within each and every one of us. There is an evil that, like this man, we are controlled by. There is an evil inside of all of us that, like this man, we have no chance of deliverance from. And it causes evil and torment and wickedness inside of all of us. And that evil is something that the Bible calls sin. Sin. Every time we've ever lied or cheated or, or spoken horribly of another person or done horrible things, it is because of this problem, this evil we have inside of us called sin. And there is nothing that we can do to remove that from ourselves. We are like this guy. We are at rock bottom because of the evil inside of us that we cannot deliver ourselves from. And the only thing that can deliver us from this evil is Jesus. That is it. That is the only thing. Our salvation exists because of Jesus. And if our salvation exists specifically to glorify God, then that impacts the way we live. I think many times we call, we, we allow our salvation to be the end goal. We say, God saved me, I'm saved. That's, that's God's purpose for coming to this earth. That's God's purpose for dying on the cross. That's God's purpose for doing what he did in the scriptures for me today is so that I could be saved. And I don't think that's, I don't think we come to that conclusion selfishly, but I think that that is not the right conclusion we need to come to. God saved you 
not for the end goal of you being saved. God saved you so that you would have the ability to glorify him because he saved you. If God saves us from evil, how could we not worship him? If God saved us from an evil that we cannot control, how could we not give our life to him? God saved you so that you could live a life that is honoring and glorifying to him by showing his authority over all things, including yourself and including your sin. Salvation is a means to an end, and that end is glory to God. So we have his purpose, but how does he achieve that purpose? How does God achieve the purpose of being glorified? And this is where it gets practical for us, and this is where the second half of the passage takes us. So if you jump back into this passage real quick, what have we, we've, been, we've been on a journey in this passage and we ended with the point of the, the, the pigs running off the cliff and drowning. Sorry for leaving you at a very dark spot there. But while this is all happening, unbeknownst to us, until now in the passage, there was a couple of herdsmen, shepherds if you could call them, who were overseeing these pigs. And I want you also to imagine the frame of reference of these poor shepherd men. These shep- they were more than likely shepherds' boys. They probably would have been young or you know, lower teenage age, all the way down to maybe nine or eight even, they would have been watching over these pigs. It was what they were told to do by their, probably by their parents. And then they, 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 they see down the hill this crazy interaction between this group of guys, this dude named Jesus, and this demon-possessed individual whom they've known about. They've tried to subdue him, but they couldn't be able to. They know who this guy is. And then they all of a sudden see their pigs run down the hill, jump into the lake, and die. What do you do as like a poor 10-year-old, 11-year-old kid? These individuals came back to town, and they, boy who cried wolfed it. They come back and they say, well, you aren't going to believe what just happened. Apparently people believe them. They go out to the lake to investigate. And look at what they found in verse 15. They came to Jesus. This is all the the individuals in the region, different individuals in the region. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They knew the journey that this poor man has been going through. They were there when they saw his chains break. He was more than likely rumor, the rumor, the the outcast of this society. Some of them might have known him personally before he was overtaken by these evil forces. He could have been a friend to some. They've seen his journey. They've seen his chains break. They've seen this this, this, this horrible condition he's in, and they see him sitting down, properly clothed, and in his right mind. They're saying, are you serious? After all we tried to do to help him, now he's just sitting there? What did that to him? What changed this man? The answer is Jesus. And there came a 
fear over them. They said whatever was more powerful than those evil forces, we, we don't want anything to do with that. Sure, they asked what happened. The, herds, the little herds boys gave their reply. They found out Jesus was the one that did it. He's not going to lie, obviously. And they say, we can't, we don't like this. We need you to leave. They ask Jesus to leave. They see the power of transformation that God alone can do, and that brings fear into them. They say, we can't have this. We need you gone. And so Jesus obliges, and they get back into the boat, and they go to leave. But not before the, the demon-possessed man, again, sitting clothed in his right mind, gone through a radical transformation, goes back to Jesus and says, let me go with you. You did this to me. Let me be with you. I want to be with you. I want to hear from you. I want to see what else you're doing. And I think rightly so. How many of us in this room who claim to be Christians want to be with God? How many of us want to see God working? How many of us want to see God change lives? I think rightly so. He asked this question, and Jesus refuses. But instead, he leaves him with this command. In verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy. On you. The end of the story, verse 20, says that he, being the formerly demon-possessed man, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The Decapolis, by the way, is a group of ten individual cities, Decapolis, ten cities. It's your Greek lesson for the day. Ten individual cities. All these cities specifically were not Jewish. They were Gentile cities. There were people who did not believe in the God of the Old Testament. And this guy comes back and he says, you're not going to believe what just happened. He goes back to his friends. He might have gone back to his family members, his siblings. He, they, and, and they must have known. If they knew who this guy was, he was gone forever. I don't know if he's necessarily sending letters while he's demon-possessed, but they, he's been away for a while. One could imagine that they are at least concerned or confused about it, and he comes back and he says, look at what happened to me. You're not going to believe this. And he talks about the evil that he was under. He talks about this problem he had, and he talks about how he had no way of escaping it. But this random man pulled up on the shore, and this man called Jesus saved him. This man called Jesus saved him when he couldn't save himself, when no one else could save him. And everyone marveled. One of the first Gentile evangelists. One of the first. Probably not the first, we can't tell. But one of the first who shared the message of Jesus' salvation with these towns, with his friends, with his family, with everybody he had the ability to go. The Decapolis, there's multiple cities all over the place. He's not just going to one spot, he's traveling, he's going around. It wasn't just a one-time situation. It was a constant reminder and, and going to people and saying, look at what God did for me. Look at how God saved me. 
We talked about how Jesus' purpose in saving us is to glorify himself by showing his authority over everything. And I'd make the suggestion that Jesus' plan for achieving this purpose from this passage, Jesus' plan for achieving his purpose is to save us so that we can go and share about it. This passage shows us one of the first calls of evangelism, one of the first calls to take your testimony, the fact that God saved you and share that with those who don't have that salvation. And again, this comes back to salvation not being the means to the end, but the end goal being glory to God. And I think that if we call salvation the means to the end, if, that's, or the, if we call salvation the end goal, then when we're saved, we're good. We're done. Dust off your hands, chill out, relax, you're good. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture specifically tells us that our salvation is done so that we can get up and we can go and we can share our saving story, share how God saved us from evil with a world that is still overcome and overpowered by evil. We are saved so we can go. Not just so that we can stay. Not so that we can chill out. The chill out will happen one day when we get to be with God. But because God didn't send us with him when we became a Christian, God still has stuff that we need to, to God still has given us stuff that we need to do. Jesus saves us with a purpose and a plan. Jesus' salvation is intentional. It is specific for each and every one of you. If you in here call yourself a Christian, if you've repented or confessed your sins, turned away from your sins, and believe that Jesus' death on the cross forgives you of those sins, you have a responsibility to take that message of your testimony, the fact that God saved you, and share that with others. You have that command. Many times we can get bogged down, or if we know of somebody who's, a, who's not a Christian that we're trying to show our faith to, we can perhaps think, well, I just got to get the, 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 the apologetic arguments. I just have to prove that God exists. I just have to, to come up with the ways that I know that God exists. I got to give proof. I've got to give debates. I got I to gotta win this thing. But this passage doesn't show us that. Are those things good? I would say so. But this passage shows us a much greater power is not in those logical arguments or those apologetic debates, but in the power of the story of how God saved you. That is our power that we possess. That is the gospel that we carry with us every single day. And we have the ability to share it with people every single day. And there's many opportunities for us to do that. We have friends, we have families, we have a community. And just as you have friends and families that you are commanded to share your testimony with, 
We here at Calvary, um, we have been going through a process, just as Randy was mentioning earlier, of different transitions. And one of the initiatives we've been going through is an outreach initiative, trying to find opportunities for people at Calvary to be able to share their faith with, with our community and serve our community. And at the last business meeting, we brought up some examples of or ways or on-ramps that we have that give you an opportunity to join in on this outreach initiative that we have at Calvary to be able to share our testimonies and glorify God in our community. Some of those things involve different events that we wish to do with the Haven of Rest Ministry, specifically with the Men's Life Recovery Program, and also with uh, Baroda Elementary School. We have different ministries that we would like to be a part of in those places so that we can serve our community and help our community and share the gospel through our testimony with the community, with people that need to hear that message. If you have any questions about some of those outreach initiatives or plans, please talk to me afterwards. Or please talk to one of the guys in our outreach initiatives. You might have gotten that through the quarterly business meeting notes Talk to one of us. We have several opportunities. There might be, there's one on the screen. There's some on the screen. They're flipping through. There's signups outside the store over here. Talk to us afterwards. But, but, but much more important than making, than, than providing a, uh, a volunteer sales pitch. Forgive me if that's what that sounded like. Much more important than that is the commands that Jesus gives us and the, the promise and the expectation that Jesus has for those of us who are Christians. If you are Christian, your job is to fulfill the purpose for Jesus saving you, which is to glorify him by showing his authority over everything. And a way that you can do that is by sharing your own story, your own testimony with those who don't know Jesus, that don't know Christ. And by doing that, by being obedient to that expectation that Jesus gives us, we can glorify our God who saved us from the most horrible powers of darkness that we could ever imagine. Jesus saves with a purpose and a plan. The question is, are we going to go and fulfill that plan and to fulfill that purpose of bringing glory to our God.